All right, this week on the podcast, the Let's Go Show, we had Mark Rosenthal, Chief Revenue Officer here at HQO. Mark and I dove into a little bit about uh, our history and how I uh, pursued Mark a couple of different times before ultimately uh, convincing him to come over to HQO. Dove into the state of uh, prop tech, uh, drew on our past experience from ad tech and digital media, and then did a deep dive into Let's Go Values, specifically ownership and how we apply ownership, what it means to us, and then a couple of recommended readings at the end. Hope you enjoy it. This is Chase Garbarino, co-founder and CEO of HQO, and this is the Let's Go Show. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Let's go show. Um, so we're going to start with your background. We've been doing this with, so far, uh, Kevin and Greg, and we had Colin Greenhall, first external guest, who's unique. He's our real estate broker, but he helped get HQO off the ground. You were an early key team addition before we get to your tenure at HQO. Give us your background. Sure. A uh, long time career in media, advertising, ad tech, primarily on the sales side. Um, started in broadcast at CBS, ran through the ranks there, uh, here in the local market of, of Boston. Left and got my first taste of startup life at an ad tech company, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then had the opportunity to go work at Google. So I did that for eight years, worked in a variety of roles. The, uh, the last role I held at Google was running the programmatic advertising sales team for North America for two years, um, which was a, a pretty big business by any standard except Google's. Huh. And, um, uh, you know, it was, it was cool to be part of the reshaping of an industry, right? Advertising was this antiquated business for a long time and programmatic brought along the ability to use technology and data to create efficiency and intelligence in a system that hadn't previously had a lot of it. So, um, uh, so I had a great run at Google. It was really exciting to work at, uh, you know, what's touted as one of the best companies in the world and uh, earns that reputation, honestly. So. I wonder why we have so many, what the correlation is. We have all ex-ad tech people, Jim Butler, ex-ad tech, our CTO, our head of product, Kevin McGowan. Bonnie Homeyer, who runs Tex, uh, Becca Hammond on the product EPD team as Russ, well. Russ Chase came Russ from Chase uh, came from uh, Yahoo and Spotify. Tyler Vermette yeah, came from AOL. Yeah, yeah. Um, lot lot of ad tech brain power going into prop tech. I don't know. That'll be another episode. But yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Tom's, probably, Tom's like this was not what we planned on talking about. Probably probably a little probably a little bit of the network and and probably also um a, a it's a it's a good fit because our our business is B two B to C right and so all of the ad tech business is about driving consumer behavior on behalf of your your business customers so there I think there are actually a lot of parallels between yeah. what we do and uh, and the advertising ad tech business for sure um, so talk a little bit about uh, how you from your perspective coming to HQO I think you and I met what year. 
what year did we meet originally? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, let's say it was 2010 or 11. 10. Something like I that. I was going to go with 10. Ad, yeah. ad club, maybe? Uh, we get introduced through Patrick Reynolds. Patrick Reynolds. That's right. That yeah. guy's the man. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah we did. it was okay. 2010 because I was at I was at uh, I was at at Ando Media, which had uh, which had been acquired by Triton Digital. Yep. And um, and Patrick said, "Oh, you should meet this guy, Chase Garbarino. He's uh, you were doing Bostino at the time. Yep. And he's yep. pretty well connected in the market. And you guys had hit it off. And I came to meet with you. I think the you guys were in the accomplice offices. No, you guys weren't in the accomplice offices. We met at the accomplice offices. Yeah, because right. I was there that day. Yeah. Um. And then, and then I think we saw each other like, you know, every year or two for a cup of coffee. Right. That was, that was about it. I loosely recruited Mark and he very smartly passed. <laughs> he was like, I'm selling the best ad product in the world. Why would I stop doing that to come sell your shit ad product? Yeah. Uh, I, it was okay. I shouldn't say that, <laughs> but it was, it, it sure ain't Google. Uh, yeah. All right. That's but, right. But then, uh, but then more recently for this journey, uh you and i actually ran into each other at the airport i bumped into you in the JetBlue terminal uh i was at google it was like march or april of 20 uh 2018 and um i was like oh hey it's been a been a couple of years and uh, that's right so we decided to hook up for a cup of coffee and you were telling me what uh what you guys were doing here um and had just sort of just recently made the yeah the, the pivot from venture app to hqo yep um so spring of 18, you guys, like HBO probably just signed its first customer or just launched its first customer. Uh, spring of 18. Oof. For those of you who didn't tune into episode one, if you want that full story, we don't need, <laughs> we don't need to recall that one. <laughs> you can go back and, and listen to that whole ordeal. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that's right. That it, was right around then. And uh, so you told me a little bit about what was going on with, uh, with HQO and how you were thinking about the business and... I was thinking about what what was next for me anyway. Looking to looking to make a move from Google. Um, and and just, what eight years of Google? Eight years of Google. It's a good um, run. It was a great run. It was at least three years longer than I thought I'd be there. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I was I was itching to do something else and go somewhere where I could make a big impact. The business the business that I was running at Google, the programmatic business, like I said before, is huge by any standard it's a multi-billion dollar right. business but when you're working at a company that's doing 120 billion dollars <laughs> in revenue it's you know it's a rounding error right um and i just didn't feel like i wasn't getting that that feeling of um of impact and accomplishment and reward that i really wanted um and i really wanted to go and build something the company when i google's a great company it also changed a lot over the eight years that i was there i mean yeah. I, there were Thirty-five thousand people when I started, and a hundred thousand people when I left. Right. Um, that's a that's a big change. How right? big was the Cambridge office when you first started working there? Uh, when I first started, we were like we were a few hundred people. Um, we had just bought ITA Software, which is a travel company that, right. that ultimately be you know we ingested as and became the Google Travel Products team. Um, but they were working down the street in a in a different building. We were on a handful of floors in one building, and over the eight years that I was there, we moved the ITA team in. We took over the entirety of uh, of of uh, what was then three Cambridge Center. I don't remember what the addresses are now, but uh, it's like three fifty five Main and three twenty five Main. We took over hmm. the entirety of one building, almost the entirety of the other, and then a third building um, 
uh, on the backside and worked with Boston Properties, who was the landlord to connect them all into a campus. And, you know, I think now they're, they're probably close to 2000 people in the, in the Cambridge office, if I had to guess 1500, 2000 people in the, in the office here. Yeah. A lot of change. The best part though, was when we went from, when you reach a certain threshold, the, the benefits and the amenities change, right? Yeah. So, and we work in the, we work in the industry of amenities. Uh, so it's a, uh, so it's a, you know, re- it's relevant, but we went from having catered, catered lunch where they would bring in, you know, they would bring in like the trays of food and put it out buffet style, yeah. and, but it was all sort of pre-made to having like the full on-site kitchen to having three full on-site cafes, which, three, was, yeah. which was pretty awesome. One of the more unique recruiting processes while I was recruiting Mark, I would go to Google and he would take me to lunch <laughs> at Google. <laughs> no, don't worry. I'll come to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to get people to leave the, uh, it's hard yep. to get people to leave the office. Yeah. I didn't even ask you to, cause, uh, if he had seen 125 link in our old office place before, uh, before he made the, he probably wouldn't have joined, but well, when I, when I, I don't want to fast forward too much in the story, but since we're on the topic, yeah. when I, after I had, after I had signed my offer letter to come on board and after yeah. I had left Google, I was coming in, uh, I was, I was in Boston with my wife. I had a couple weeks off between leaving Google and starting here. And I, and I said to my wife, why don't we go into HQO so I can sign my, my onboarding paperwork, which I had been emailing with you and, and Gomer about. And, um, we pulled into the garage at 125 Lincoln, which was the building was just the garage. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's confusing though. And my, that's for anyone is. who's seen 125 Lincoln and, in Boston, it's not obviously a building. Well, my <laughs> wife said, where's the office? And I said, it's right just through that door. It's yeah, this is it. We are in it. Um, <laughs> she said, you're, you work in a parking garage. And I said, no, not, <laughs> I said, <laughs> I said, not, not yet. And she said, well, what should I do? Should I come in or should I stay in the car? I said, no, come in. I'll introduce you to you Chase and Greg. In that parking that's lot, right. So, come in. so, uh, so we came into the office and, you know, signed the paperwork with Greg and you came in, I introduced you to Rachel as well. And we walked out, we weren't even to the car yet. And she said, you're, you're going to work there. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And she said, is it too late? And I said, said, yeah. (laughs) I I remember sitting in one of the back rooms. I was in one of the meeting rooms and I got a message on Slack. Somebody said, hey, Mark's coming into science paperwork. I said, well, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's with his wife. I'm like, that's an even worse idea. (laughs) We don't want him to see how the sausage gets made, especially, the you know, Rachel. We don't want her to see it. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. But luckily... It was too late. <laughs> well, I really, I really liked, I really liked the opportunity that uh, that you were working on at HQO. I mean, I thought there were a lot of parallels between what I was doing with programmatic and what you were trying to do with commercial real estate, which was infuse technology and data into an archaic system and give them more, um, you know, more efficiency and intelligence. And particularly, I liked this connection to the end user, right? Like. I don't know how you can operate a business without knowing who the end user of your product is. And commercial real estate is one of those only remaining industries that, that didn't really have that, that connection and still largely doesn't, right? right. I mean, we talk to customers all the time who are talking about the benefits now that they get from having that direct line of communication. We did a customer event a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know one of, our, one of our customers said specifically that the communication that they now have the landlord to the end user to the occupant of the building has allowed them to cut out 
two steps in their communication flow from from before, right? So previously they would go landlord to the property manager, property manager to the tenant rep, tenant rep to the end user, and it's a game of telephone and maybe the emails get forwarded or maybe they don't. Now this customer just goes direct to the to the end user. They're particularly in this COVID era, right? Like right. they need to change the the entry and exit procedures or communicate about any health and safety issues. You don't have time to go through all those different steps and channels. So right. so I really liked that idea of infusing technology and data into the uh, into the ecosystem. Um, I really liked the um, I really liked the fact that the company was based in Boston. This was going to be HQ, and um, I wasn't going to have to make hard choices about my career, or my family, and um, you know where to where to be located in order to continue to grow and develop. I liked that it was going to allow me to stretch. So you know, having spent my entire career in sales and sitting across the table from marketers, now I was going to have a chance in this role to be a marketer and to continue to, to leverage my strengths in sales and account management and the other skills that I had that I built. And I was going to have the chance to really be a part of the executive team and, and be part of building the strategy and building the company. And I was really excited about all of those things. So yeah. Tell us how you eventually sold it to your wife. It's a great question. Um, I don't know if I've ever heard that story. So you know, I, uh, I probably could and I probably shouldn't. But, uh, <laughs> no, my, it's, it's the only, it's the only thing that I've successfully sold That was the first she was hearing about it when she was at 125. She thought she was there for something yeah, else. She was like, what? Wait, you, you took a job? Wait, you, I literally you, just did by signing you, that. You left Google? What? Um, so uh, I, I think it's one of the only things that I've successfully sold her on. I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of failed sales in my uh, in my in my marriage low um, win rate <laughs> yeah very low win rate because i don't because i don't apply the same principles that i do to uh to work i don't manage my funnel uh, in, my, in my sales process effectively uh and and when i try to she calls me out on it and tells me she's not a client so, yeah. so. <laughs> the, the, um, the hardest of customers yeah well you know it's like you know buying is an emotional decision right people look for people look for the data so that they can support the thing that they yeah. already want to do and uh you know so i always think about it as when i'm talking to my wife i'm like well it's emotional it's an emotional decision so i just got to give her the data to support the point of view that uh that that she wants to have and i need to make sure that that supports the point of view that i want her to have uh it's a it's a tough cycle uh, we gotta get rachel on the show yeah. for sure it was we'll get it was it was a tough sell no she Rachel is uh uh Rachel is amazing. She's t super supportive. Um she knew that I've been looking to leave Google for a long time. Um and uh she you know so and I'd been sort of priming her that it wasn't going to be a, a, a an apples to apples move that I wasn't looking to go to another big company and sort of do the same thing and get into the bureaucratic monotony that I had been in it at Google and I really wanted to do something that was a that was a build and that there were sacrifices that we were going to have to make and we talked about it for a long time before the HQO opportunity surfaced and then when the HQO opportunity surfaced we had some really serious conversations about what it would mean for us you know from a um you know from a financial standpoint from a um uh, from a marital standpoint because you know she and and then after I started she was like you know I was maybe like three three, six months into my role. And she said, I just want to, I just want to temperature check here. Um, you, 
make less money and you work much harder. Is that, <laughs> is that right? And I said, I said, yeah, but I come home with a smile on my face every day. Right. Mm. And she said, yeah. And I said, well, that's better. <laughs> and she said, that Priceless. is better. Uh, that is better. Um, but when I was making, when I was making the decision to, uh, to leave the other, you know, the other funny, uh, the other funny call I got was from my, my father-in-law who said, your Rachel tells me that you're leaving Google. And I said, I am. And he said, why are you doing that <laughs> to my daughter? <laughs> uh, that's good so that's good yeah 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 um and now here i am there we go so i think we met what's the hotel right by the google office oh yeah the marriott the marriott i think was the final kind of we yep. doing this talking numbers getting everything squared away uh that was right before the 125 lincoln uh meeting where where you signed um what was the hardest transition going from google to uh, outside of the building potentially falling on you and yeah. the lack of amenities and yeah, all yeah. those things so i i was prepared i was prepared for almost everything um what i wasn't prepared for was when i got to 125 lincoln in that first day and then that first week and then that first two weeks the size the physical size of the office right <laughs> so i met you know i mentioned that google google was big when i got there it was it, it then became much bigger and it was this rebuilding campus and the culture of google is also very very meeting heavy so i was constantly on the move i was rarely at my desk i yeah. was moving from conference room to phone room to cafe to micro kitchen to you know, back to my desk for a check-in and then off to the next round of meetings. And the ability to be constantly on the move, the ability to get up and stretch your legs and walk around, the ability to find a little quiet nook in the office for, you know, thinking or working time was was something that I didn't even contemplate. You know, I, when I was leaving Google, I was thinking all about, well, where am I going to go to the gym? And what am I going to do about lunch? And, um, you know, those kinds of things. And, so I was prepared for all of that. But when I sat down at my desk on that first day and I started and I started to, you know, read some of the onboarding materials and I started to watch, you know, webinars and other things that were going to help me to onboard onto the industry. Um, I had and I was like, I, I need to stretch my legs or I need to get up or I need to change the scenery. And I'm like, there's nowhere to go. Literally. You didn't, you didn't go behind the building where we're the building 125 is above a um a supermarket of sorts yeah. we'll call it that i guess uh and the all of the there's like a lot of like fish and seafood and things that come into the building through the ba the back where you could go walk around in the parking lot um a lot of cigarette butts a lot of yeah. You didn't find that refreshing? No, I found that terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, the, the the whole the whole uh the whole neighborhood around the building is uh not not ideal. It's a tough spot. It, it is definitely a tough spot. You're, uh, you're. No, we should say uh, it's an emerging neighborhood. Uh, it's going to be great when they build that new building, right? Um, right. It is definitely shout be out great. Oxford. Shout out Oxford yeah. for sure. But, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it sits on top of the entrance of the Mass Pike, so you've got cars that come like bombing by, getting Flying on the pike. It, you know, yeah. I didn't know you could get get going that fast in such a short <laughs> little stretch. Um, 
This so looks it's like a, a city street and they're driving like they're already on the highway. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's hazardous. It's yeah. hazardous. And then, you know, the, and then, you know, some of the residents in the neighborhood or, or visitors or, uh, <laughs> yeah, whoever it can be, it can be dicey. Yeah. It can yep. be dicey. So yeah, we had uh, a, we had a few incidents at that building that yeah. we don't need to cover here, but, but that was, that was, that was honestly, that was the hardest part of the transition yeah. was that first couple of weeks of just, you know, being, you know, being in a small space, being, you know, it's like, you know, it's like being conf- like a caged animal, you know, you just get confined all of a sudden. Right. Um, and it was, uh, and it was really hard, but I, I get over it. I adjusted just like we all do to whatever the circumstances are. And, um, I'm really happy. I have no regrets. I'm really happy. So what, in terms of the, what about prop tech? I, you know, we talked about like ad tech is similar B2B to C, but, um, what's different or what are the biggest challenges? Like what, what's most interesting to you about prop tech now that you're fully in it. And in a matter of two years, you know, Mark was, I believe last year nominated by CRE tech for executive of the year, bunch of webinars. Like you're at this point, you're a well-known guy in prop tech. Like, and you probably wouldn't say that, but I'm well known to myself. that we know for sure (laughs) but i think a lot of people in prop tech know of you as a revenue leader in prop tech which prop tech is this new category it's emerging and like particularly like revenue practices within SaaS and things like that are established and there are people that kind of built up the practice like what about prop tech from a revenue leader perspective is interesting challenging whatever is top of mind. Yeah. Um, I mean, number one, it's a totally new and emerging category, yeah. right? So there's, and prop tech is, prop tech is so wide in terms of the, in terms of yeah. the definition, right? Like it, it is kind of a, it's, it's a subjective to it, some degree. It's subjective and yeah. it's a catch all, right? So the accounting, the accounting systems that, uh, that landlords use or that companies use to manage their, you know, to manage their leases or to manage their, their building costs or whatever else, that's prop tech. The, ex- the tenant experience technology and platform like that we offer yep. um, is a totally different set of technologies that doesn't t- doesn't have anything to do with how you manage your accounting necessarily, right? Yeah. Um, and that also is considered prop tech. So I really I really like this idea, like I said before, of helping to connect the end user to the uh you know to the landlord or to the owner because i think that that connection and the data that can that that can be spun out of that connection can be super powerful in terms of driving smarter better decisions that are going to drive value over the long term of the of of the of the business and of the industry right there is no question that every industry in the world from retail to real estate to finance has gone through a fundamental shift that's been driven by technology mm-hmm. and the businesses aren't the same today right? right you think about you know back in the back in the 80s i remember like walking into bank of america which wasn't bank of america it was like bay bank or shawmet or something at yep. the time right yep. to get my to get my to open my first bank account and mm-hmm. you know get my get my checkbook and my deposit slips and my withdrawal slips because you had to go I'm older than a lot of people, but uh, you had to go. You had to go into the bank to yeah. put money in, and you had to go into the bank to take money out. And then along came ATMs, and that changed the game. And then along came 
uh, online banking, and that changed the game again. And now you don't need to go into the bank for for anything, really. I can't remember uh, I mean, the last are, time I went to a bank. Yeah, there, there are a handful of there are a handful of things like I went to the bank to get something notarized. Um, that was before I knew that Shelly Just on our team is a notary, so now I don't have to go to the bank anymore. Notarized dot com. There you I'm go. A small supporter. That's right. You don't even have to do that anymore. That's right. So, um, but you still have you still have tellers in the bank. You still right. have services. You still have people who go to the bank. You still have services that you're that you that you can or or need to go to the bank for. But I opened I opened bank accounts for my kids online. Yeah. Right. I move money between the accounts online. Um, I deposit checks with my with my with my mobile phone. So there's been a fundamental shift in the financial services industry that's been enabled by technology and creates a better experience for me right. as a user, right? And for PropTech, the thing that I think is really exciting is that we can look at those same user preferences and use data to create an entirely new experience for those users that really drives value, right? So if you're a landlord and you're thinking about how to create value for your customers, your customers certainly are the tenant companies who are paying your rent every, uh, who are paying you rent every every month or every quarter or every year. But they're asking their employees more and more what they what they think. Number one and number two, you know, they spend ninety percent of their operating expenses on those employees. Right? right, it's all about wages and benefits and other costs to support the employees. They spend nine percent on rent. So if you're a landlord. And you're trying to be great at customer service, help service your customers with the biggest problem they have on their balance sheet, which is their employees. Right. And I think that's the, like, to me, that's the most exciting thing about what we do and about PropTech writ large. It's about the data and how you use data to, to get smarter. I think it's the largest data set that is captured, right? Like when you think about groups like Microsoft like the the applet the enterprise application layer of prop tech is not a big enough market segment yet for Microsoft to care. So when you see Microsoft moving in, you know it has to be a cloud play, right? It has to be Azure and like this feels like an area when you're thinking about what generates a ton of data, well buildings generate a ton of data when you think about like electricity off the grid. Um, the importance of that data with regards to CO2 and sustainability. Um, where are people active where we're capturing none of the data? Almost nowhere, right? Well, what people do in the physical world, like in buildings and public transportation, stuff like that, we have like very, very little data where a lot of data could be generated. So I think it's... It's kind of fascinating to see, you know, the comp with ad ad tech, right? Was that a lot of people from real estate don't know as much about advertising, but you think about the the process was so manual. Mm -hmm. Somebody would draw, I mean, people have seen Mad Men, so they know that somebody would draw an ad and then you'd have to like print the ad, put it in magazines, and then you had no clue who your customer was because they're buying that magazine off of a newsstand or something like that. You start mailing it to them, you get like a little bit more data because you start to get the mailing address. Now, the I mean, anyone who's watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix or anything like that, they know way too much. It's a little scary. But you think about all of the things that people do within buildings in the built world, and it's kind of a black box. Like they have no clue, like how people use their assets. Yep. To me, is it's crazy. 
Yeah. I mean, you spend all of this money on your building on CapEx and OpEx. You bring in services, you renovate the lobby, you put in a fitness center, you do all these things, and you don't know if those are the, the, the value drivers or yeah. not, right? Right. Um, I mean, no clue. No clue. Have we told the golf pod story? I, okay. I, I thought I wasn't sure if I did on F1 or two. I could have sworn with greens. Uh, I w- no names mentioned. I was in a meeting. You've heard this story. I have. Where we were, we were sitting there and we were talking about like, you know, how do you measure success when you, you know, capital project that you're putting real money into? And I said, this building's beautiful. What have you done lately? And they said, well, we put in golf pods. You know, we're talking millions of bucks. Like golf pods aren't cheap. I said, that's really cool. I think how many people in the building golf? And they kind of sat there silently. And one of these people was more senior and one of them was probably mid-20s. And he was, <laughs> and I remember he looked at me and he goes, if Henry Ford had asked his customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And normally with prospects, you know, I'm, I'm pretty buttoned up. But at that point, I just had to be like, did you just compare yourself to Henry <laughs> Ford? And the boss goes, he most certainly did not. <laughs> stepped in and was like, you got to be kidding me, right? And they were like, yeah, no, I mean, the the pods aren't getting as much use as we thought. And I'm like, you know, there's there wasn't any data. And we're talking like limited data, like a survey to the building. Do you want this? Right. But even, you know, you think about like the data that they have on advertising. I mean, we could we could see Google could see, but even just average ad tech. You can see in real time conversion rates, the types of audiences, the profile, the demographics of who's engaging with the ad, who isn't engaging, who's converting, who isn't. I mean, it is so targeted and scientific now that the art of advertising has been dramatically changed. So you think about it will happen. It's going to happen. Like to your point, every industry is going to have this. It's interesting to think about what how it's going to change the the operations and the art of, you know, the, I think the industry calls it placemaking, which is, right. that's the word. I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but um, I don't know where, what do you think the biggest impact that is that data is going to have for the end user of the building? Oh, a more personalized experience and a better experience. Right. I mean, the, the, the challenges we're all, we're all, you know, we've all been living in this COVID experience over the last several months right and um i think a lot of companies have learned that they can operate with a more flexible work environment i think a lot of employees have learned that they really love and miss the office but it's 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 highlighted the things that people really like and the things that people really hate about going to work right and the research that we've done the research the market's done all says basically the same thing which is people hate commuting Mm -hmm. right they think it's a waste. Although we did have a Slack conversation the other day that people miss their commute. Did uh, you see that? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I think people miss the people miss the decompression time. Sure. Right? At the end, yep. it's particularly on the way home. Yep. People miss that transition time and that decompression time between the workday and uh and home, but that's only valuable up to a certain point, right? If you have a 30-minute commute that's pretty quick um and and gets you and gets you home and gives you that little break, awesome. But if you're commuting an hour, hour and a half, two hours from the office to home, yeah. that's an incredibly inefficient use of time. It's in, 
it's miserable uh, to, to be doing on a daily basis. And it and commuting, there are studies that show that commuting is one of the leading causes of stress, yeah. right? So commuting, bad. Community, com uh, culture, collaboration, Routine. Am amenities are all things that people really value about the workplace. And so if you're going to ask people to commute and you're going to ask people to come in because if you own a building, it's only valuable if there are people actually in it, right? Empty yep. buildings don't have much value. Um, then you want to create value that outweighs the, uh, that outweighs the cost of, of, of the time and the commute and all, all the other things, right? right. Um, you want to make sure that when people come in, the experience they have is super positive so that it, so that it makes them want to come back again and again and again because their employer is giving them optionality, right? Their employer is giving them choice. So, um, you know, I think there's, uh, I think there's a huge opportunity for landlords to use data to create more personalized, more customized experiences that are amenity rich, services rich, uh, experience rich that drive, uh, that, that, that drive value in the areas that people really care about collaboration and culture and community and amenities. Do you think that landlords, one of the things that I like constantly wrestle with as someone who, you know, I'm a startup person that I see, I see things the way they are automatically. My default is it should be done differently, right? Which is not always the way that it goes. And I think like one of the things that I am constantly looking at and trying to figure out if it's going to move that way or not, but to me, there's massive opportunity and it's, I can't wrap my head around why it isn't happening faster is when you think about Google, who you worked there, everybody knows it because it's part of their brand. They're the foremost thinking they're the top company in the world in terms of workplace experience. Like the Mountain View campus was that alone got press for Google, right? Like the experience of Mountain View, it was like Disney World for tech geeks when it like first came out, right? And people take tours to go name an office that isn't a Hollywood studio where people actually go to take tours. I, I can't think of another one. Um there may be some, but I can't think of any. You think about the way that they're thinking about the future of work. You know, they're very much looking into urban campus. And when you're across a lot of different properties, even Google isn't saying, you know, we need to insource, right, the core competency of everything about office management. And when you think about everything from the the physical technology in the office suite, uh, all of the procurement of services and vendors and the things that go into the physical workplace, it's, it's core to the proposition of we provide you space to be productive as a company. Like that, to me, is the value prop. You have economies of scale as a landlord, at least the big ones do to move into the service of the space, not literally just the floors, the windows, the ceiling, the door, right? But I don't see a lot of them moving aggressively into what does a work solution look like? Not just, I own a built like walls and floors, I own a building. Do you think that this is going to push owner operators or the management groups to be much more innovative and go further into, I guess, the suite 
of what they provide? I think there are a couple of different schools of thought on this. When like when we talk to when we talk to landlords, we hear from some. We absolutely want to go further with our customers. We want to be partners to our tenant companies. We want to be inside the suites with them. We want to create a unified, you know, building system stack that uh, that gives them better access to technology and the things they need. Like we want to provide their Wi-Fi. We want to have a unified access control system across the entire building for the base building and for suites because that's going to require less uh, you know if you're using a if you're using a, a fob or a card you know you only need one instead of two if you're putting it on the device all the better right like yep. they can remove friction and create efficiency by unifying the tech stack and going deeper into the into the suite and then we talk to others who basically say yeah no no, no we like we lease the building we lease the suites and and we're done everything else is on right. uh it, it is on our tenant companies and that's an investor that's because this this industry is fundamentally driven by it started with investors and the financial investor mindset, which is capital allocation back when capital was significantly more scarce. Mm -hmm. Capital is much more of a commodity now. And there's still a lot of that mentality where it's like, well, I just expect an annual return like this. Why would I do anything? Right. Right. Other people do stuff. There are lots of examples in the world where people pay more for the premium experience, right? right. Or, or for the experience itself, right? Think about um, Nordstrom, right? Nordstrom is, you know, it's not the it's not the most expensive place to shop, but it's certainly not the least ex expensive place to shop either. And they've built their business on customer service, right? And on take, you know, there, there are all kinds of stories from Nordstrom about you know, I, I heard a story about somebody who went to return a tire to Nordstrom and they like Nordstrom they doesn't sell it. They don't they don't sell tires, but they took the return because right. that's the, like that's, that's their, their that, that that's their ethos. That's their their philosophy. The reach and PR they got from that more than that's right. Ever. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, but creating that, you know, creating that type of of top tier experience is a huge opportunity for landlords to separate themselves down the road. The ones that are that are stuck, you know you know, stuck in the mud, uh, in the old location, 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 that's all that matters. Like that might be fine today, but they will eventually get left behind. The world changes and you either change with it or it changes around you. Right. Um, and I, I think it's so interesting that we hear it all the time in the kind of industry circuit. It's become a little bit of a joke at this point, how often data gets compared to oil. Mm. in the commercial real estate panel and virtual event circuit. And I think I, I think it's funny to hear them talk about, you know, we see data as oil and, you know, we originally the people that own the land didn't know they were sitting on top of all of this valuable oil, right? So they undervalued the land. Well we know our buildings are valued at X, but the the data is, you know, X plus Y and the Y is huge. But I mean, Rockefeller and Standard Oil famously vertically integrated and did the work to, you know, uh, get the oil, drill, get the oil, and then wholesale and retail. I mean, he built his own pipeline, like all mm -hmm. that stuff. So I don't, I'm, I'm not seen as a great, there's a lot of talk about data, 
But in terms of mining, when you think about like we we know we've seen it in ad tech what needs to happen, and we talk about the phases of data, right? Like mining data is hard. Like we're we're still in the earliest innings. There's probably five hundred, a thousand startups of sensors, all different kinds of sensors that are going to physically be in the building. There are people that are pulling data off of uh, the Wi-Fi signal. There are cameras in the ceiling. There's the IoT connected turnstiles. Like we're still barely penetrating the market in terms of the physical mining because it needs to come from because this is a physical business. It needs to come from in the building in a lot of ways um, before you even start to get the the engine of intelligence on top of it. But I I don't see them kind of piecing it together. Well, uh, yeah, I agree, and I think it's um, I think it's highly complex today too, right? Sure, because we're sure. not at the we're not at the infancy of the data age anymore, and a lot of industries, advertising is a good example, were there from the beginning. So as more data became available, they were able to plug that into and build upon a system that they had, that they had already started to craft and a vision right. that they had already started to to realize in commercial real estate. There's been some, there's been some data, but I mean, I can't tell you how many customers we talk to who still manage so much of their business in spreadsheets, yeah. right? And that's just really hard given all of the things that you just mentioned with sensors and IoT and other connected devices and tenant experience, you know, tenant data and, and whatnot. And the, the Rockefeller example is a good one, except for the fact that when Rockefeller was drilling for oil and buying the land and vertically integrating it was all about oil as the resource and oil is really singular, right? Yeah, when you yep. mine it, um, the, the, the better comparison would be if Rockefeller were sitting on a land, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at land that had oil and a coal mine and, and you know, oil and coal and water and diamonds and yeah, gold right. and all this other stuff and said, Wow, look at all this stuff. How do yeah. I make how do I make sense of all of this? And how do I create value from all of this? And which one do I prioritize? And what's most important and what's most valuable? And um and, you know, that's where we are in the data in the data ecosystem today is there is so much out there. Right. And figuring out how you prioritize sensor data over end user data, over accounting system data, over lease data, over you know, whatever, 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 and piece that all together into a unified data stream. Right. Um, that, and intelligence. And right? intelligent. Data extract the intelligence. That's right. And right. extract the extract. Excuse me. Extract the insights and intelligence from that data. It's a it's a hard problem. Yeah, and it's not even just the infrastructure of the data and the intelligence. It's the people that get you there. Mm -hmm. like we talk about that a lot in terms of. Um, I think a what. What is also a perf not a perfect comp, but as close to a perfect comp as it comes is the the third party management companies and the um, uh, the ad agencies. Yep. Which so much of the skill set is drastic. I mean, the ad agencies got absolutely you know they got hit by a tornado with everything that Google and Facebook came and did because it's like speaking. If you know how to speak English, it's like learning Mandarin, right? Like you go from understanding a 30-second TV buy purely based on Nielsen ratings, and, which is relatively straight down the fairway, to programmatic 
advertising and social targeting and uh, organic buzz and all this stuff that you had to figure out in what is a very short time period of change, right? Like there are physical constraints in prop tech, uh, at least in the segment that we're in, that have slowed this down. It won't be as fast as ad tech because you you literally have to go building by building in a lot of ways. But the change management of the skill set, we I think that's further behind tech adoption. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge there's a huge need for retraining and skills building across commercial real estate for sure. I think the other thing that we saw in advertising as programmatic starts rise was that buyers, particularly at the agencies, viewed programmatic as an existential threat to their uh, you know, to, to, to their livelihoods, to their business, to their roles, right? Because if the machine is going to come in and make the buy and I, and then, then what's my job as a, as a human and right. real, really it was your job is to adapt to a new skill set and understand how to pull the levers and turn the dials on the programmatic machine to make it work better for you and for your customer and for your business. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't to resist the the oncoming train of programmatic that had already left the station and was barreling down the tracks no matter what right it was to get on the train and figure out how you can be a part of the the transformation of the business and i think the same thing is true here technology data you know these things can be perceived to represent existential threats like we hear from property managers sometimes like well a a i don't want more work but b right. if i you know if if this part of my job is automated, then I'm going to lose my job. No, it, your job changes instead of instead of instead of being in react mode all the time and answering tickets and solving problems. The role changes to to proactive mode, to customer service mode, and it becomes more of how top do I line. how do I manage top line? How do I surprise and delight? How do we right. how do I create experience that drives value? How do I make the calls that are coming in about taking more space as opposed to you know, fixing some, some problem. Right. And that's just a fundamental shift in, in mindset and skill set. Yeah. And that's, it's kind of surprising that there's that much resistance. I get, I get it during some of the early industries that get hit by technology, but now there's really good proof like the ATM, which you brought up earlier, the ATM famously when it first came out, People were worried about bank teller jobs. Bank teller jobs increased because the ATM made banks more accessible. So instead of having, say, one in the town center, it created smaller but more banks in more locations. And oftentimes, technology is not a substitute but a complement, which is a big focus of, uh, I just finished the book Triumph of the City, which we've talked about, where... Edward Glazer, the author, talks about how there's this fallacy that like technology always substitutes. And he said, when you look at cities, in-person engagement clustering of people drives to greater usage of email and text. The telephone was originally going to, quote, kill the city, because now that you can talk to people, why would you need to be around them, right. right? He said, even going further back, I think it was Florence, I forget where, but like the printing press. They said, this is going to kill the city, which it's like now that you can send communication on paper, what do we need to be around each other for? But it actually created industry where people knew how to use that technology and they ended up clustering. You think about prop tech, the exact same thing. 
I think the more technology comes in, the more value ultimately, I think they're getting such little value out of what is incredibly valuable, right? Which is kind of crazy to think about because they make so much money off of a commercial office building, you know, in a city like Boston where we are. But there's still so much more that I think technology is going to be able to extract. And I think it's going to lead to job creation within commercial real estate because there's just limited things that they do in terms of the building. But there's a lot more experience that could be being driven by the operators of the building. I think. There's been more technology innovation and problem solving in the last decade than there was in the, in the four decades previous, right? Right. And we saw up until COVID, we were seeing record low levels of unemployment. Right. Right. I mean, technology creates jobs. The right. jobs may be the jobs may be maybe different. The property management job may change in scope. Sure. The bank teller job may change in scope, whatever. But um, but job creation is an outcome of new technologies. So this existential threat that exists, and you know, I've I've seen it in a parallel industry with with advertising as you as you mentioned it just isn't a real it's just not a real thing it's not right. a real threat right um yeah even in that book they talk about um when you add lanes to a highway you would think that traffic would go down traffic actually goes up because it creates more demand for the city it's like you start to have a better commute people here hey this is a great city because the commute's not that bad and then more people go and then it starts to be like well it's a boom it's a boom town right mm -hmm. and then you get into the yogi bear territory nobody goes there it's too busy or whatever the, right the, the <laughs> quote is right <laughs> all right we'll switch gears so no <laughs> so you're saying double down <laughs> i think there's some really yeah, well, Mark, Mark knows better than most people that occasionally it takes the old hook in the neck to get me <laughs> off the stage, or at least onto a different topic. So it is called the Let's Go Show, and we try to pick uh, one of our values where we, we discuss um, something about that topic. Last week, we did Speed, where uh, I had Colin Greenhall guess how quickly... It took to build the iPhone, how quickly it took to roll out Amazon Prime. Uh, long story short was they were all incredibly fast and that prop tech and commercial real estate need to move much, much faster. Mm -hmm. um, I think we should talk about ownership and like what ownership at HQO means, how we think about it. Because I think, you know, of all of our values, ownership is the one at the senior level that probably you and I probably spend the most amount of our time on in terms of like the culture we're trying to create. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably the most important at the senior level, right? Mm -hmm. um, so talk about ownership, how uh, you were introduced to the values, specifically ownership, and we can, we can kind of riff on leadership within it and how we're, how we manage at HQO. Yeah, for sure. So I, I, you know, I think the Bible on ownership, at least that that we refer to on the executive team and and across the company, is uh, extreme ownership. Mm -hmm. uh, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin's book, yep. um, which is a phenomenal book about really taking 
control and taking ownership of your business that has phenomenal that, that has great principles that are applicable in any business and the layout of the book for for you know uh for anyone who hasn't read it is essentially a story from their time as as uh navy seals primarily in in iraq and ramadi uh followed by a principle that they can extract from that experience and then uh an application to business which is a case study from uh from their consulting business uh where they're working with companies on on, on leadership and and on ownership and when you first presented the values to the company and you talked about um you know you talked about speed and really referenced blitz scaling as the book uh as the book there that to, to lean into which is another great book um when you talked about ownership and recommended uh recommended that one i i and a lot of others here at hqo read extreme ownership and i think the the principles in it really connected with me and i'm just about done with um dichotomy of leadership which is yeah. the the sequel because extreme ownership is uh, it's challenging in some respects to wrap your head around, right? Because ultimately the, you know, everything continues to roll up. Yep. So, you know, if I'm responsible for marketing and sales and customer success and tenant experience and so on, any problem in those departments, I, I own. Yep. Right. Um, and I, and I hope you agree that I do take ownership for those problems, but, uh, that's going to be the surprise reveal at the uh, end. <laughs> and how do we think Mark's doing in ownership? Yeah, right. Um, but in in dichotomy of leadership, they really start to tease apart some of the principles in extreme ownership. You know this because you've read the book. But yep. um, and you know thing things like um, uh, you know things like you know empowering you know, like empowering your um, your team, decentralized command. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're if you're practicing decentralized command, then those those business line owners need to really own own their business. Ultimately, I'm still accountable as the CRO and you're accountable as the CEO. But we need to empower our, um, you know, our business line leaders as well and figure out what pieces of the business they're truly going to be responsible for. What how much accountability I need to hold, uh, it, how much accountability they need. Uh, how much I need to hold their feet to the fire on it, how I need to manage them, um, et cetera. But yeah. we, yeah. I, th I think it's like, what's interesting. I think you mentioned, um, I forget the word you used to describe it, but like, I, I literally view ownership. The way that we think about ownership is it's almost like a lifestyle to me mm -hmm. in like some ways, because it's not something you can, I don't, maybe you, feel different i'd actually i'd be interested in your perspective on this i don't think that people who have ownership can turn it off right like it's a really hard thing to turn off right and like the the internet the kids on the internet have this term like you know from the movie the matrix to red pilling where it just means seeing the truth behind the situation it's not political they mean it is like red Red pilling means like, you know, when Neo in the movie, I think that's his name. Yep. I'm not a big Matrix guy. Takes the red pill and he sees the truth about the Matrix. Like, I, I've found that true ownership is very rare, right? I certainly didn't have it in my 20s. Like, I ran a company in my 20s and, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't a big excuse guy, but I don't think I, like, I, I didn't get it, right? Like, 
you read extreme ownership, you start to get it. But I think you really start to get it when you put it into practice. And when you, when you, there's kind of, I don't know if you had it, but there's like an aha moment yeah. when you're like, oh, this isn't taking full ownership of the things that I should be taking ownership for. It's much more gratifying and uh, liberating, in my opinion, than it is like scary. And I think a lot of people view ownership as you know, consequences and all yeah. that. Which the funny thing is, is you have the consequences whether or not you own it or not right. in life, right? So I don't know. I I feel it's the one that is like the hardest for a majority of people to get to. Yeah. Well, it's I think it's scary for a lot of people, right? Yep. Because ownership means you're taking ownership of the good and the bad. Right. It means you're taking ownership of the successes and the failures. And if you're really a great leader, and we'll talk about leadership and its connection to ownership right. in a couple of minutes, but if right. you're really a great leader, you're actually not taking ownership for the successes. You're giving it's, you're giving credit to others for the successes, and you're taking ownership of the failures. Right. Um. And and that can be scary for people because it threatens their it threatens their existence. Um. I work really hard on on my team to build a culture where we encourage mistakes. Yeah. Right. Um. And you and I have talked about this. Like, I'm trying to find ways that we can actually celebrate people's mistakes because that's how, like, that's how we learn. And one of the things, you know, in our, um, in our, in our, let's go values, um, we're, you know, we're trying to maintain the same value system across the entire company, right? Learning yeah. excellence, truth, speed, goodness, ownership, but give the departments the flexibility to create their own sort of spins on those things. So the way we've laid that out is with the values and then underlying the values are our principles. And for our planning on the customer team, one of the principles that we have under the under the learning value is mistakes. Make them learn from them, don't repeat them. Yep. Right? And I'm trying to really infuse that across the team because if you can get people comfortable with making mistakes and that that's okay, it's okay to lose a deal. Yeah. Right. Uh, we don't want to lose deals, but it's okay to lose a deal as long as you, as long as you know why you lost and we do the retro and we figure out how we can, you know, what we can do differently next time. We don't just throw our hands up and say, oh, well, I lost or a competitor beat me or they're better than we are. Yep. Um, you know, it's okay to make a mistake in, a blog post we put out, whether it's a, a typo or a wrong date or, you know, sent, putting, you know, putting poor choice of words, whatever it is, yeah. as long as we fix it, we retro it, we understand why we made the mistake and we don't repeat that. Right. Right. Um, and if we can build that culture where mistakes are learning opportunities, then I think that encourages people to take more ownership of their work because they feel less threatened by making the mistake. Right. If we can celebrate the mistakes publicly and talk about those as as shining moments, as good yeah. things that happen in the in the company and in the culture, then that's a you know, that's a really good way to start building ownership across the team and getting people comfortable with, um, uh, you know, with making those mistakes and taking ownership of 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 that. Yeah, I tell people the we we have no problem with people that make mistakes. We have a problem with people that don't get started and don't get to a mistake. Right. Right. Like if you're not a, if you're not proactive and you're playing not to lose, you're just not going to be successful. Right. It, right. Like that's just, it's not our culture with the mistake. The people need frameworks for, 
for decision making in a company, particularly as you scale. The framework that I try to talk to people about is relatively simple, which is when you have a decision to make or you're trying to figure out what to do, whatever it is, it's it's the fork in the road. Can we undo this or is it permanent? If it's permanent, consult a broader audience. If it if you can undo it, do it and make a mistake. Like who right. cares, right? Yep. Like that's the that's I think so critical. And then to your point, don't replicate mistakes, right? Like that that's where people get into trouble. But I don't I don't think of our most successful people, if you were to if we had a scorecard, which you we would never take the time to do this, but if you had a scorecard of how many mistakes they've made, I bet volume is higher for our best performers because they're taking that bats mm-hmm. and you don't see a lot of the same mistakes, mm-hmm. but they're kind of blazing the path and figuring out what to do and all of that. Yep. So it's something though, like from an ownership perspective, it's so hard for, um, I think when you start to break up the groups of people, not just at HQO, but in, in today's kind of labor market, specifically within tech, but every industry is becoming more tech oriented where you have, young people who owning and taking responsibility for their outcome. Like we've talked about, you and I are both Simon Sinek fans and millennials, and now we're getting into Gen Z. The younger generations have been in a system where uh, they expect um, instruction and gratification, like quickly, right? Yep. And I think it's it's hard for young people to understand that the reali- the reality of the workplace requires responsibility and accountability. You see, like when you get a young person, we have a bunch here, you know, specifically on your team, I see it a lot in the BDRs, right? There's just a lot of accountability. And I think once you get comfortable with it, it starts to set you free in your path forward. And then when you see people move into the team management role there's such uh, either player coach or you know full management of responsibility of the output of the team it's a hard it's a hard kind of mental hurdle for new managers to get over which is i'm in charge and my people are performing well or they're not performing well and i see a lot of times with young managers or new managers the well it's not my fault because this person isn't doing well every ounce of the team is your responsibility of ownership right so if you don't have we work hard to give the team autonomy to pick the ingredients to some degree to use a bill parcells if you want me to cook you got to let me buy the groceries right um but you control if you need to get the right if you don't have the right people you got to get the right people and if it's always them, then maybe it's you, right? Right. Like you, getting the results is you might have the right people, but you got to figure out how to get results, right? That's right. What? It, where do you see, particularly for new managers, um, what's the? Where have you seen kind of? Of you've done a lot of management training. You're leading our management training program here at HQO with Mark D'Antonio. Um, what are the critical things for people that are new to management? Yeah. So first of all, I think. There's a, a really important distinction between management and leadership. Yep. So what you just articulated were uh, were examples of lack of leadership. Mm-hmm. When you have a lack of accountability, 
when you point fingers at your team and say it's their fault, not mine. Um, when you take credit instead of give it, those are things that are that are demonstrating a lack of leadership. Management is about process. Management yep. is about establishing the rules and the tools and the systems and the processes that are gonna that are gonna drive the business. Right? Anybody can be a manager. Yep. That's a it's a skill set. Yep. Right? Leadership is more about um and you can learn to be a good leader but i think the best leaders come by this you know come by this honestly and just sort of have this, these characteristics high high eq mm -hmm. right um empathetic supportive of their team give credit take accountability and ownership yep. right? um i think confidence underlies a lot of that yeah i mean i think look e i've talked about this with with my team quite a bit um, you know, everybody has some degree, maybe not everybody, most people have some degree of imposter syndrome. Yeah, right? sure. We uh there was there was research when I was at Google, I think the I think it was like 70% or 75% of Google employees had exhibited some degree of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um if uh, you don't, you should be a little worried. Well, yeah, <laughs> and, and but that's that's what that's what drives you, right? I mean, at right. least for, at least for me, that that feeling of Man, I don't know if I'm good enough to do this. This person on my team is better than I am, right? It takes, and I think you're you're right about confidence. It takes a it takes a degree of confidence to hire somebody who is better at the job you're hiring them for than you are, right? Right? Um, I, I mean, Einstein said, "The more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know." That's right. Right. That's right. So um, the more the I think people think like. You've been at, you know, it, within our company, people look at you, you came from Google, you ran a multi-billion dollar P&L, man, he's got it all figured out. But I think the more you probably learn, you're like, wow, there's so much that I need to learn, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and, and beyond that, like I'm, I'm at, I'm at a stage in my career because as you guys, uh, as you guys tell me often, I have so much experience, um, <laughs> Gray experience, uh, a lot of gray experience, a lot of, a lot of code words. That's in right. There. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, where you know where I've I've seen this play out on on both sides of the of the coin, right? <coughs> like you should hire people who are better than you. You are your team. So how do you do that though? Right? It's hard. How do you know they're better than you if you don't even know how to be that good? Yep. And then how do you convince somebody better than you to join? So first of all, by the way, I did it. So, <laughs> so first of all, you have to you have to figure out who your who your hiring committee is, and your hiring committee aren't isn't is not just the people in within your company who are interviewing the candidate. Your hiring committee is the resources that you have inside the company and out who are going to help you identify the candidate profile that you should be looking for, the questions that you should be asking in the interview, the way that you should be assessing answers, what you should be looking for, right? And some of these are skills to your original question, which I completely didn't answer. Um, <laughs> some of these are a skill. Some of these are some that. of the, some of these are skills that managers need to need to learn, right? How do you how do you develop an ideal candidate profile when you're hiring? How do you build a bench of qualified candidates? How do you establish the interview question? Establish the interview questions. How do you assess the candidates' answers? Right? How do you make calls? So having that external and internal sort of hiring committee to help you shape that can give you can get you a lot of insight. When we were hiring for our, for when we were hiring Lauren, for example, as our VP of marketing, who is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I mean, she is first of all she's a career marketer. I'm not. Right. I've yep. sat across the table from career marketers my, 
you know, my entire, uh, my entire professional life, but I'm not a career marketer. Um, I went to, uh, you know, I went to my network, number one, to, to source candidates, which is how we found her. But number two, to ask, what questions should I be asking? What are the things I should be looking for? When, when I ask that question that you're recommending, I ask, what kind of, like, what's, what's a good answer? How do I know? Um, you know, and then I coach the team internally when we're interviewing her on what to ask and what to look for in the answer. Um, and then when I bring her on board, like I've been very transparent with, with Lauren. I did the same thing with, with Tyler who leads sales for us in North America, right? He, um, I hope that Tyler is a better salesperson than I am. Mm -hmm. I hope that he's a better sales manager than I, than I am, right? Because that's how we're going to grow as a company. If I hire people who I'm not threatened by, if I hire people who just keep me in my, in my comfort zone, then we're not getting any better right. as a, as an organization. And my job as CRO, my job as an executive, my job as a shareholder of the company, because we all have equity here, every employee, right? Yep. Is to, um, you know, is to build the company and to advance the, and to advance the, the growth of the company. Yeah. Um, it's not to keep myself comfortable and make sure that I feel like I'm the best, you know, like the best person to run all of my, all of my departments. Right. So, um, so that's, I mean, that's, that's how I do it. You gotta, you gotta have the confidence to know that your job is different than the job you're hiring from, uh, or excuse me, the job you're hiring for and hire the best possible person you can find for that role. Yeah. And I think that's where like within ownership and what's interesting about how our values continue to like we grow and our values grow with us in a lot of ways. So backstory on our values was, you know, what our, at the last company, Kevin, Greg, and I founded, we didn't, as the company grew, certain things broke down because there wasn't strong values and culture that everybody knew this is how we operate. Mm -hmm. At this company, we we were smart in that we deliberately set out to make the values authentic. And we asked early employees, what's important to you? And if you can describe why another employee is a good teammate, right? That's a, that's a value. Mm -hmm. And the, the thought process of authenticity and bottoms up was correct. Yeah. What also makes values really important is they need to be memorable and actionable. And I remember standing, we did an all hands and the company is pretty small, probably, you know, 20 something people I said, who here knows our values? And people could list like, uh, this one's one and this one's one. And I was like, I can't admittedly, I have them on a piece of paper and I can do it. If the CEO can't do it, that's probably a big problem in the spirit of ownership, which wasn't one of them yet. That's <laughs> on me. Uh, but I went through our Slack. I searched Slack and the phrase that got used the most was let's go or LFG. Um, we'll leave it at that. But let's go was kind of a rallying cry. Obviously, we're in Boston. The Patriots say let's go a lot, right? So it was just kind of like authentic. And like a lot of our, with very little manipulation, learning, excellence, truth, speed, goodness, and ownership all like kind of fit right and i believe you were on when we rolled out let's go yep and what we've since done uh 
you know, we rolled it out. Everybody knows let's go. So it's like, all right, phase one, they're memorable, right? I think at the end of last year, at the end of 2019, we said, are they actionable? And it's like, well, how do you know if you're learning, right? How do you know if you're excellent is a little bit easier, if you're hitting quota or, you know, performance reviews, like you're assessed it if you're doing an excellent job. Truth, no clue, right? People are like, I don't, I don't know if I, I think I'm being truthful, but mm-hmm. you know, how much should I share? You know, uh, speed was a little bit easier. Goodness is hard. Ownership is kind of hard, right? So we created levels where we literally have a, you know, zero, one, two, three, four, zero is, you know, immediate problem. Uh, I believe one is at standard. Yep. Two is exceeding and, uh, three is exceptional. We don't go to four, zero through three. Um, but what's interesting is within ownership and what you talked about, you touched on both learning and truth, right? And they Mm -hmm. kind of feed off of each other. Yep. So when you're, you, you mentioned being a manager and hiring people that are better than you, I think the hardest part about being a successful manager, particularly manager, manager for people who are moving up is the only way you can hire people better than yourself is if you know what it looks like, Mm -hmm. right? So there's this mix between, and Ben Horowitz talks about this in his book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, do the job yourself. I see a lot of people um, say, well, I can't do X, Y, and Z because I have to delegate it, which is a huge mistake. You can't delegate anything until you have an idea of how to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have to become a marketer, but you ran marketing for how long here? A year and a half. A year. And yeah, five quarters. So you did it. And then when you talk about expectations set in and when you're talking to your team about what's expected, that you touched on truth, right? So I think it's the learning part is hard because it's not necessarily about years of experience because it's about data. Right. Some people can take in more data in a short amount of time, but there is somewhat of a correlation between the data that you've taken in on a particular function and time, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can throw yourself into something for 90 days, but it's it's really hard to do that while you're managing the rest of the team. Yep. So it's it's interesting that learning and truth were what you had feeding into ownership. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the other thing that's that's worth noting is we don't, the the levels the levels for each of the um, uh, uh, for each of the values aren't just you know zero to three. There's there are descriptors for right, those. Right, things, right, right. So you know for ownership, a level zero talks about like the descriptor talks about not being reliable, uh, like dropping the ball, not being right. reliable for for your teammates, right? Whereas making excuses, making excuses. Whereas right. like, at the exceptional level, it's a hundred percent ownership over all you know, over all tasks and deliverables, good or bad. Yep. Right. Um, and th- that, that's a huge contrast. And there's two levels in the middle, obviously, but, um, uh, but it's not just, it's, it's not just an arbitrary zero to three scale. There's very clear definitions for what it takes to, to earn those. Right. Yeah. And we do everything around those levels. So you get comped off those levels, yep. you get promoted off those levels. Oh, this is of of all the places I've of all the places I've worked in my very long uh career that's gotten me all this gray hair and experience that everybody here loves to point out. Um yeah. uh big part of the culture. We <laughs> we uh we really do truly live 
our values authentically and infuse them into the culture here. I mean, from, uh, you know, from the all hands every month where we, where we recognize team members, right? We recognize, we recognize people, one person or two people in each of those categories in every all hands. And then in the interest of truth, right? We send out to the entire company, all of the nominations who nominated what the, you know, what the quote was. So everybody gets the full visibility into not just the, not just the quote unquote, the winners or the people who were recognized on the slide, but everybody else who was, um, who was nominated. We do our, our end of year awards, the footies, and we give out, you know, end of year awards tied to our values. Um, our performance reviews are tied to the values where people are rated, like we just talked about on, you know, on their performance against the values. Literally everything we do is in some way, shape or form. Our meeting agendas for our, yep. even for our exec team meetings, our meeting agendas are framed around the, uh, the values. And that's how we, that's how we structure our agenda. So we, we live our values very authentically here, which is, you know, um, uh, why the, the name of this podcast series is so, 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 uh, so appropriate yeah. for us. All right. We'll, we'll wrap since we're coming up on time. We'll wrap on Tom. I think you threw in here Green's idea of the book club. So what are you reading right now or what have you read uh lately or in twenty twenty if you found time to read? I I try to make time to read. It's uh it's it's slow going but uh but I do try to make time to read. So uh in twenty twenty uh, I can't even remember what I've read in 2020, but I'll give you some of the I'll give you some of the books that I've read recently. Uh, a lot of them you mentioned. I read um, I reread the hard thing about hard things. Yep. I read Blitzscaling. I read Extreme Ownership. I'm just about done with Dichotomy of Leadership. Uh, I'm reading a book called How Brands Grow, so I can continue to beef up my marketing uh, my marketing chops. Yep. Um, uh, I uh, I read a book called The Operator. That was more of a pleasure book but it was about it was written by um a navy seal named uh robert o'neill who's huh. the i saw uh, him speak yeah he's, you like him uh he's he's polarizing but My i like doesn't the, like him. i thought the book was great <laughs> yeah. um you know he's the uh he's the navy seal who put the bullet in bin laden so he says so he says yeah. that's right so he says controversial uh-huh yeah. uh-huh but he had some really like he had some really great stories from he's a showman but he's a showman he's a for showman, sure but he had some really great stories from you know from growing up playing basketball with his dad and you know sort of what what shaped him um and got him mentally ready to to be a seal and um you know regardless of regardless of whether he he fired that shot yeah. or not uh it takes something pretty special to to be a navy seal oh man when you hear him speak in real life you can see you're like that's the type of mental. There are kind of two personalities that I've seen in the SEAL. I'm kind of obsessed with the SEALs. You see the yeah. Jocko type that's like true blue leadership. Yep. And then you've got a guy like him where I think the only way to describe it was like when I listened to him talk, I, I was sitting there thinking, and I don't think this often, and I remember thinking, I wouldn't want to be against that guy in something. Yeah, right. Because he'll go... He'll take it to the end of the night, man. That's right. Like he, he, he will go. It's part. He's wired that way. Yep. I mean, he talked about jumping out of the plane and what's Captain Phillips or whatever. Oh yeah, yep. he might have been on that. Yep. It's it's a different mentality. Yep, for sure, for yeah. sure. Um, so those are some of the books I've read recently. Next up, uh, next up on the on the reading list, uh, Team of Teams, Atomic Habits. Um, I've got a few others. I read. Um, 
Uh, I read a book called uh, I read a book called Elevate, which was written by my friend Bob Glazer. Mm. Uh, I read I I have but haven't read yet uh, his latest book called Friday Forward. Um, How do you pick what to read? Recommendations from yeah. other people. I I don't read what's on the New York Times. But I couldn't even tell you what's on the New York Times bestseller list. I don't yeah. care. Um, all of my do you reread stuff? Yeah. Um, and and um, more recently, I've actually been. I've been going back, not as a reread, but I'll read the entire book and then I'll go back to the beginning and I'll sort of like skim through and, and create yeah. my own, create my own summary of, of notes. I've tried a couple of different, you know, I've tried to like take notes as I go. I've tried to highlight books, I've, but this, um, uh, this approach that I've been, that I've been trying the last year or so has, has been much better for my, for my recall, which is to just read the book and then go back and skim and take the and take the notes. Sometimes I'll dog ear the pages so I know where to go back to. But I told Tom before the show, I've gotten into arbitrage where I'll listen, like working out or yeah. driving or whatever. I listen if I haven't read the book yet. Um, I'm a Naval Ravikant fan. He's the guy who started Angelist and he talks about like setting vanity metrics on how many books to read. He's yeah. like, it's terrible. Yeah, he's like, because then you're just reading a book to get through it. Yep. It's like the information is don't waste the space in your head on it. So I'll listen if it's good. I'll listen to the whole way through. If it's good enough, then I add it to the reading list, uh -huh. and I do so. I read and then I'm marking it up, right? Yeah. So I've got a couple in rotation, like Hard Thing About Hard Things, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, uh, Atomic Habits yep. by James Cleary. Is that it? clear um what else art of strategy uh team of rivals that one's hard to get through it's lincoln mm. but there's no better leadership book even though it's not positioned as a leadership book yeah um where i try to every year go back and reread which yep. is getting hard because the list is longer yeah right so now i'm just going through marked up like hard thing about hard things you don't have like each chapter is its own lesson right. so you just have to have them on reference right um but I think it's fascinating to see how people arbitrage information. But I'm working to, I want to get off social at some point. I got to figure out how I'll consume my news. But I want to get off social media and just all of my information intake on long form podcast books, yeah. stuff like that. Yep. Easier said than done. Right. Another one that I read um, that was really good is Communicate to Influence mm -hmm. by uh, Ben and Kelly Decker. It's a, um, it's about, uh, it's about moving your moving your audience from uh, from information to inspire or something like that is the uh, is the is the subtitle. But it's essentially like a it's another good marketing book, it's a good communications book in general. But for creating uh, you know for creating a, a framework for for storytelling and uh, just communications in general. Another uh, one like yes, have you read that? Mm -mm. Fifty scientific ways of persuade the book is called yes and then the oh. sub is 50 scientifically proven tactics of persuasion okay good one yeah um yeah all right challenger customer that's also on my list i read the challenger sale um yeah. challenger customer is the the sequel to that so that's next on my list or that's on my list also that's where everybody on the podcast should go anyone who's listening should go read getting to yes yeah. i don't want too many people reading never split the difference yeah because the never split the difference people will take the getting ts people to school so we can't have too many people read about reading about those negotiations yeah tactics. right 
Right. We'll all be doing it. Yep. Then again, we'll probably get stuff sorted out quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, I think that's, that's a good run right there. That's a good run. You got We got some material, huh? All right, Mark. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.